by the time in history the gospel accounts were written, so they were written in the first century, from the middle of the first century, so 40 or 50 to about 90 um, after Jesus, in the first century there. Those years is when the four gospel accounts are written. Now, when they are written, they are not the first books of the New Testament that we have written. Historically, there were other books written before these. Think the letter to Galatians, uh, uh, the book of James. Both of these came about before any gospel account was there. And this is because church communities were forming right away, and there were church communities. And so the apostles were writing these letters and instructions to these faith communities. And at that time, there were plenty of eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and his ministry and his death. And then as even when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he says there were 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and many of them are still alive. And so for those early churches, there were tons of eyewitnesses that had spread throughout the known world at that time. But as it continued to go on, they took what was an oral history and wrote it down so that faith communities in the future wouldn't be tied to an oral tradition, but we would have God's word living and breathing in our hands for us to, to read this day. Now, a fun fact or a question, does anyone know why in the Bible it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than it sounds really easy to say that way? Well, they're put in that way, so when they put the canon of the Bible together, they put them in order of when they were first written to the last one written. So Matthew was written first, then Mark was written, and then Luke was written, and then John was the last one that was finished around 90 A.D. And, and so that's why they appear in that order in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Mark's gospel is the shortest. So that's why I was like, there's an easy entry point. We'll go through Mark. It won't take as long, right? Plus, Mark, when you read Mark, you'll find that Mark is in a hurry. He uses the word immediately 40 times, and in the first chapter alone, he uses it 11. This is a, a, a word that is the most often used throughout his writings immediately. Mark it has this need and desire as an author to just keep the story moving. Right? It, it's almost as if Mark's gospel reads more as a news report, whereas John's gospel is, has, has this great depth theologically. And then Matthew and Luke, they both have uh, long discourses and teachings from Jesus. And, and, but Mark is much more succinct than that. But again, because it seems that he's in a hurry, right? Immediately moving on. We too are often in a hurry, right? In 2020, we, we're in a hurry for this to be over, right? We can't seem to get to the end of the year fast enough, right? But, but we're in a hurry for a lot of other things too, right? We, we just can't wait for the next thing. We're always looking for the next. And, and so being in a rush and a hurry is something that um, is intrinsic to us as well. However, Jesus isn't. And so we're not going to rush through Mark, however tempting that might be. So let's enjoy this walk with Jesus. And I encourage you to be mindful of where you are and where Jesus is leading you during this time. So let us hear now from God's word in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. As he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. And so Mark is different than the rest of the Gospels. Right? Matthew and Luke, we get the Christmas story. We get the birth story of Jesus. In John, he begins with creation. Mark gets right to the point of the beginning of his ministry. Again, he's in this hurry. But yet here in the first three verses, he tells you what he's all about, that his gospel account is going to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news found in Jesus. In fact, that Greek word for gospel, we get the word evangelism as well, evangelion. And, and in this Greek word, it, it was the word to herald, to announce the coming king. That's Mark's purpose of this gospel, to herald the good news of King Jesus. And so here in these first three verses, he even says, I'm quoting Isaiah. He's actually quoting Malachi and Isaiah there in verses two and three. But in quoting the Old Testament prophets, he shows us that while he may be in a hurry, God's had this plan for a long time, right? Isaiah is written back when the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. And the way they understood Isaiah as a prophet at that time was to come out of captivity of Babylon and back to the promised land. And when the gospel writers go back to Isaiah, when New Testament writers go back to Isaiah, it's because we relate to it. We see Jesus in it because we are in captivity to our sin and to death. And there is one who will come and deliver us to the promised land. And that is Jesus. And so here he quotes that Isaiah 40, that John the Baptist would be the one who prepares the way. That John the Baptist is announcing the coming king. And so John the Baptist He's in the wilderness. They're calling for people to repent of their sins and be baptized. The same message the disciples give after Pentecost. Repent and be baptized. 
But here, John the Baptist was doing so to prepare the way for the coming king. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the baptism John baptized with is a baptism that, that was uh, uh, this symbolic baptism. For often before the arrival of a new king to an area, they would send out an envoy. And that envoy would come to remove any obstacles, clear any last insurrections that might mount, and prepare the people that the new king is coming. They'd prepare the way. And that was John the Baptist's job. John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth. We know this from the gospel account according to Luke. Elizabeth, the relative of Mary. John and John the Baptist and Jesus are related. You can imagine how that might go later in life. Mary and Elizabeth getting together. Elizabeth like, ah. Oh. He's out in the wilderness eating locusts. How's Jesus doing? Oh, he's perfect. <laughs> but they, they were around each other at Passovers. But here's John the Baptist in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus. For six months before Jesus arrives for his baptism, John the Baptist is out there preaching calling for repentance and baptizing Jewish people into this baptism. And then after Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist will do it for six months longer until he's arrested and thrown in jail, where, at which time he will be in prison for a year until his fate would be met because Herod's wife, as a gift, asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. But here he is preparing the way. Because John the Baptist had this calling from God and an understanding that our greatest need was our captivity to sin and to death. And that what we needed was forgiveness and a savior. And he knew that in order for us to receive that forgiveness, we first needed to repent of our sins. And to demonstrate that repentance, they were immersed. They were baptized. The baptism was a preparation for the arrival of that new king, of the Messiah, of Jesus the Christ. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that John, when he preached, he was a, he was a judgment preacher. Fire and brimstone, the brood of vipers. Wouldn't even baptize some Pharisees and Sadducees. It would convince people of the coming judgment, and that would lead them into baptism. For see, the baptism John offered was a visible separation for those from those who would be under judgment of the coming king. And all through this, John does something that's so crucial. He says, it's not about me, it's about the one that's to come. He points continuously to Jesus. In fact, here's what he says in verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here he is pointing to Jesus while claiming his own, unworthy, excuse me, his own unworthiness. 
For see, it was the lowest of the lowly slaves who would untie sandals and wash feet. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy of that job. Jesus is coming. Jesus is greater than I. And then we see Jesus come. Jesus comes to John the Baptist at the River Jordan for the distinct purpose of being baptized. But we have this question. Sometimes we keep it in the back of our minds. Sometimes in Sunday school, we're willing to ask it. Why was Jesus baptized? Why? Right? This baptism that John the Baptist is offering is for repentance of sins. Jesus was sinless. He knew no sin. In fact, John the Baptist, as we said earlier, is relatives with Jesus. They've spent Passovers together. They know who each other, they, they know each other. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Elizabeth had to have told him the stories. And in Matthew's gospel, we get the, the tense exchange between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist continually refusing that. I'm not baptizing you, Jesus. You're supposed to baptize me. And, it, and it's this continual presence. We get it as it's just a one time, but it's almost like, no, I'm not. And Jesus is like, yes, you are. And there's this, there's this tension in there until finally Jesus says in verse 15 of chapter 3, must do it to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the question is, why was Jesus baptized? There's several wrong answers. There's an ancient writing. I can't remember what it's called, but, but it goes to say that Jesus was baptized just to make his mom happy. Right? Mom, mom Mary said, we're going down to John the Baptist and the whole family is getting baptized. That sounds like American Christianity 101, right? The whole family's getting baptized. We're taking you all with us. I mean, right, we understand that when mom or grandma or, or maybe our spouse is, is, is the one dragging us along sometimes. If you go back and look through history, if it wasn't for the women in the world, a lot of men wouldn't have come to faith. A lot of families would remain unsaved. But in that ancient writing... He did it to please mom. And then he says, I don't need to be baptized. I don't have any sin. And he says, well, maybe that's a sin thinking I don't have any sin. And we're like, no, Jesus has no sin. It's a false answer. It, it, it's been a heretical book. So, it, so that's a wrong answer. Another wrong answer is from a group called the Gnostics. Now they say in their answer that Jesus was only a man until the moment he was baptized, and then he became the divine son of God. False, no, wrong, because we're told at Jesus' birth, he is given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, from the moment of his conception, has been God. Fully man, Fully God, 
That's why we have the two candles up here on the table to represent that. One candle representing his full humanity and one candle representing his full divinity because that is the totality of who Jesus is. So if he had no sin and Jesus needed no confession, he needed no repentance, he needed no transformation, why was he baptized by John? It's this hanging question we have. Again, we go to Matthew 3.15 and we get that clue. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, which is to do everything that was righteous. That is to do everything God required, that God had purposed. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's a coronation day, confirmation of the new king. And here at Jesus' beginning, and as we will see all the way at his end, if God said it is to be done, Jesus gets it done. If God, the Father, says it is to be done, Jesus does it. Jesus did everything righteous, skipping nothing, because he remained sinless all the way until he took on our sin on the cross. He's perfectly obedient to the Father's will and purpose, from baptism even to death on a cross. This is the totality of Jesus' life and ministry. And so Mark says in verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens torn open, the spirit descending like a dove and a voice come from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That verse right there is why our stained glass windows are painted the way they are. Like a dove, the spirit descends. Not that the spirit is a dove, but like a dove. It's not crashing down upon Jesus, but it is gently coming to lay upon and into him. The Spirit publicly entered Jesus for full empowerment of his life and ministry. And in that moment, coming out of those holy waters, he heard his Father's voice of pleasure his father was pleased and proud of him for his commitment to be the servant savior who would atone for the whole world's sins. And so now we reflect back to those words John said right before Jesus showed up. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, we saw that at Pentecost. Jesus tells the disciples, wait, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. We saw that in Romans 8. 
life in the Spirit, that the Spirit comes and dwells, lives permanently in us, that it is the Spirit that is the cause of our adoption. There at that moment, we come to Christ. The Spirit comes, and that is that adoption instantaneously. Just as Pastor Chris said, it is the Spirit that comes and has us born again. So have you perhaps received water baptism, but not the drenching in the Holy Spirit? For that is the baptism you must have. All Christians are baptized into one body in him. And unless Christ has filled your life, unless he has entered your heart of hearts, you are not one of his. Regardless of how you have been dumped or sprinkled or dry cleaned, you are not one of his unless you have received the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, his cleansing from sin and his dwelling to lead you into godliness. Is Jesus real to you? If so, spend your whole life blessing his name. If not, seek him today.